be advised, Blue Rose Task Force is filled with secrets and spoilers. Welcome to the Blue Rose Task Force podcast, where we look deeply into Twin Peaks as a whole, one episode at a time, using the full scope of the show Twin Peaks and all its official media. We don't use the word canton, but we consider all official releases important because Lynch and Frost have approved their presence. And we welcome all input into the collective consciousness that is the Twin Peaks community and wider audience. This podcast is a watch-along podcast for those who've seen all of Twin Peaks, including the third season, which we do consider as we go along. Today, we are looking at the 11th overall episode of Twin Peaks, episode 10, often known, depending where you look, as season 2, episode 3, episode 11, or what the German regionalization team named The Man Behind Glass. I'm your host, John. In episode 10, Cooper removes the letter B from under the nail of recently attacked and sedated Ronette, Albert reveals his strange and difficult path, Leland tells the lawman that he knows Bob, though later they come by to arrest him thanks to Jacoby's hypnosis testimony, Audrey gets heroin forced on her while confined at One-Eyed Jack's, Philip Gerard misses his meds and goes full Mike, Nadine wakes up thinking she's 18, Maddie and James begin feeling romantic thoughts, though Maddie gets upset that everyone is treating her like she's Laura, and Donna shouts at Laura's grave and meets Harold, who she likes well enough to meet him for more than once, even though he knows way too much about her and has a copy of Laura's diary. Now, this question obviously has a lot of clues and things to follow along if you're trying to solve the murder of Laura Palmer, but... As far as seeing it in a wider picture, um, what questions can we can we try to answer based on the material that we've seen here in relation to all of Twin Peaks, including the books, including season three, including Fire Walk With Me? So the questions this week that I'm going to focus on are, how does Albert's duality define his role in the Blue Rose Task Force? How does Cooper navigate the layers of Twin Peaks? How is Lodge Space intruding on Twin Peaks? And before we start digging into those questions, we're going to look at the production history behind the curtain. So this episode was written by Robert Engels and directed by returning director Leslie Linka-Gladder. The final draft ended up being completed around August, early August, and then it began filming on August 8th. And... Um, and per Leslie Linka-Gladder in uh, Twin Peaks Unwrapped by Ben Durant and Brian Kazaska, this episode, and I'm assuming her next one as well, um, she basically says it was just like season one. It felt the same way. It was, it was kind of built the same way, except now everybody was looking at Twin Peaks. So she noticed the outside pressure for sure, even though internally it worked about the same as, as season one. The convention that she brought to the Great Northern this episode was a cheerleaders and marching bands one. Um, you only see it a little bit, but it's just that nice touch that she liked to add to everything. Or, you know, every time she came to direct anyway. You know, I, I said it before that this is one of her early gigs, but, you know, you can already see it still. Um, you know, what what makes her one of the best directors is is seen right up front in that first scene with Ronette. You know, it's like that that slow panning half circle away from Ronette's bed right after she was placed in there by the two um the two nurses. You know, it's like you see it empty, you hear struggle, and then you see her put on it and then it pans away from the door, the camera does. Um and we see all this other stuff happening in a room while while 
an emergency is happening. And um, it's while we hear Ronette being administered a sedative, you know, it's dramatic, it's tense. Um, yet it's also slow and looking away from the actual action. You know, it's it's a great mood right off the bat. And, you know, this mood maintains pretty much all the way through the whole episode. And you can totally see why, you know, <laughs> why Gladder is one of the best directors on some of the best shows in all of history and why she's still doing that today. Now, Engels um, got hired on in a more official capacity, just like Peyton did. Um, Engels is going to be the story editor now. And in this episode, he was actually specifically tasked, uh, tasked with, um, you know, softening Albert because at this point, he'd been this mean little battering ram that goes through town. And I mean, sure, he's nice to Cooper and everything, but like, how is he going to be a sustainable character with the rest of the town if they don't find a way to, um, you know, make the audience like, <laughs> you know, ba basically think, you know, like, hey, stop being mean to everybody, dude. You know, it's like you've been here a while now because, you know, we feel the weeks in between episodes. So anyway, Engels took him in the new direction that he was told to. And um, Miguel Ferrar, uh, Miguel Ferrer loved, you know, he, he loved the scene so much. And, um, you know, per, um, per Twin Peaks Behind the Scenes by Mark Altman, he, he actually ran upstairs. Or wait a minute, that, <laughs> sorry. Th this is a Reflections by Brad Duke's note where um, he ran upstairs and he thanked Mark Frost specifically, like, you know, like he, he just stopped production on this for a minute, ran up to, to Frost's office and basically thanked him for the opportunity to be able to perform something like that. You know, it's like he thought he knew it was iconic immediately. As far as Twin Peaks goes, like more, more broadly, um, we've got three new characters introduced. There's Jean Renault, who was uh, played by Michael Parks and Frost. Um, Frost got the word from John Ray that um, Michael Parks could, could be in the conversation for the role. And uh, Frost just loved it because he watched the cult show that Parks was in called Then Came Bronson. And um, Richard Boehmer came up around the same time. Like they, they were the, the same up and coming age in Hollywood at the same time. And um, Boehmer thought, you know, it's like there's nobody who who's more, you know, who, who acts better than Parks, except he also took no prisoners, which means, you know, it's like you do not screw around with this guy. And um, you know, that that came through pretty easily in this episode, too. I mean, Gladder in um, in Reflections also said um, that the Parks played played the uh, the bad guy role so light and under the surface that it was terrifying. And uh, you, you can kind of see that pretty easily. Like, it, it seems like, you know, you just turned it on right away. But um you know, he didn't take it because he was a bad guy or anything. He took it because of the French Canadian accent that he wanted to put on this thing. And, um, you know, it's like he, he loved the voice more than almost anything else. So, you know, even though it, it didn't pay very well, according to him, you know, like he, he's, he says, I'm doing this anyway. <laughs> now, now doing a complete 180, we also have Dick Tremaine in this episode. And uh, per Twin Peaks Unwrapped, uh, Joanna Ray cast Ian Buchanan in an, obsessive, uh, in an obsession fragrance commercial that was directed by David Lynch at the time. And um, uh, according to Ian Buchanan, uh, he said the next week they had a meeting, uh, you know, Lynch and Ray and him, uh, where Buchanan learned that he would make the perfect dick. <laughs> so, yeah, they they uh, they had him pegged for being able to pull off comedy, I guess. And then we've got Harold Smith. As far as as that character goes, Harley Payton um, in Essential Wrapped in Plastic, he he confirms that this was based on Arthur Crew Inman, who wrote diaries in seclusion from 1919 to 1963 and hired talkers to tell him stories about their lives, which he wrote down. And we don't get that backstory here, but in the next episode, um, 
you know, we, we get Harold explaining that almost exactly verbatim um, in the next episode with the uh, quote-unquote Jerry Stahl script. Now, as far as how the episode is received, it, um, it aired on October 20th of 1990 to a 12.8 uh, million viewers, which was down a little bit from the last week's 13.7 million. So, you know, a little bit of a dip. But in the grand scheme of things, it was still above 10, 10 million viewers. So I don't think they were quite ready to cancel it yet. But it's it's slowly dripping, you know, it's slowly drifting down. And um, it's going to need that shot in the arm of the killer reveal in a few episodes just to get the ratings back up to the point where the show can actually continue rather than being canceled before December. All right. So we looked at a little bit of the behind the scenes stuff, and now we're going to look at how David Lynch reframed this in, in the um, early nineties after fire walk with me was over after twin peaks was dead as a doornail. And this was kind of his way to put the final stamp on things. Letters are symbols. They are building blocks of words which form our language. Languages help us communicate. Even with complicated languages used by intelligent people, misunderstanding is a common occurrence. We write things down sometimes, letters, words, hoping they will serve us and those with whom we wish to communicate. Letters and words calling out for understanding. So I know Lynch kind of focuses on how all communication is essentially rooted in misunderstanding. And this seems like, I mean, it's about as close to a treatise on why words and letters can't completely, you know, do the job. And, you know, I mean, letters, you know, specifically, it, it's probably brought to mind because of the bee that was found underneath Ronette's fingernail. But, you know, it's, it's mostly about the misunderstanding that can come from that. And you can see that a lot later, too, like with the way Harold is with the diary and Donna. Yeah, I mean, there, there's, there's all sorts of things with communication all the time in Twin Peaks. But, you know, even, even in a more story-present kind of way, you know, it's like knowing connections between things, you know, by getting them in words doesn't necessarily mean you understand those connections enough to solve a crime. You know, I mean, it helps narrow down the range of ambiguity, but it doesn't actually, you know, just come right out and say, you know, Leland killed Laura or anything like that. And um, honestly, the the way that, you know, words, uh, you know, letters and words are calling out for understanding, it could also just be as simple as a reference to Laura's diary, which, you know, Jennifer Lynch wrote. It can explain that a diary is there, sure, but, like, those words will never explain to Donna why Harold has it, you know, things like that. I'm going to stop right here for a moment so that we can hear from some of our fellow podcasters on the Ruminations Radio Network. Hey, kids, it's Don Shanahan from the Cinephile Hissy Fit, one of the podcasts on the Ruminations Radio Network. If you've been enjoying this show, come listen to Will Johnson and I fight it out over cinema's best and worst on the Cinephile Hissy Fit. Find us and all the great shows over on RuminationsRadioNetwork.com. All right, welcome back. So here we are looking at the actual scene breakdown, or, you know, scenes within this episode through the framework of our questions. Anyway, we learn a lot about Albert in this episode, and we can actually take a crack at answering how does Albert's duality define his role in the Blue Rose Task Force? You know, leaving aside his general tone, it's like, I'm beginning to wonder, does he actually anchor Cooper to the worldly? You know, does he, does he do that for everybody in the task force? Um, you know, Harry's preoccupied with the giant and asking questions about that. You know, like, you know, so what does the giant sound like? And, um, you know, we've got Albert, you know, acutely participating, um, you know, before diving into the hard evidence that they can actually work with to solve the case. Um, he says, confining my conclusions to the planet Earth. Yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> em and Steve from the Sparkwood and 21 podcast would say that, um, 
you know, Albert listens to, you know, in, in last episode, Albert listens to Coop talk about his missing ring, et cetera. And, um, you know, he makes a snarky comment, drawing him back to earth. And then Cooper says, I'm glad you're with us, Albert. So Cooper actually likes that he's pulled back from his tangents. You know, it's like somebody is focused on the nuts and bolts of things. And um, it on when when um, when Em and Steve talked about that, it really reminded me of how, um, you know, Albert's there in season three where where gordon sees the vortex and um you know like right before he starts glitching out and looking like he's going to disappear from the frame um albert reaches out and grabs him by the shoulder right then so you know cole stays on this plane of existence because of albert pulling him back um <clears throat> You know, it's essentially like that that note that uh, Briggs uh, wrote, uh, you know, for the for the times for the the White Lodge portal or whatever it was for the uh, for the lawman to find in that pod. Um, you know, it's like keep some soil. Remember to keep some soil in your pocket. And in a way, Albert is kind of that proverbial soil. Um, it's probably why he's the only agent listed uh, to Tammy in season three who hasn't actually disappeared. And, you know, he, he hangs ahead on that comment, too. Um, <clears throat> so, yeah, he's grounded. And we end up seeing another example of that in uh, Final Dossier, too, where, um, you know, we, we start out that book with Albert's autopsy of Leo Johnson. And, um, you know, he doesn't hypothesize at all about, um, you know, Doppelcooper or anything like that. You know, he assumes that Earl killed Leo because that is where the evidence directs. You know, the the only the only sensible conclusions from, you know, the available worldly evidence is the stuff that Albert absolutely focuses on. And in this episode, he he also verifies that the Bob trail is cold. No one's seen him. So, you know, he's covering this beat of the world and, you know, he leaves it to to Cooper to investigate through the uh the mental the dream space kind of places but then we have the question of albert's tone i mean uh, what, what it essentially comes down to i'm i'm gonna talk my way through this but you know rejecting aggression that's an absolute lie albert has work to do as you know everybody in twin peaks does so you know i you know, okay, so so Harry goes up to Albert and basically says, "Okay, well, you know, what can we do?" And um, you know, I mean, he's he's obviously trying to help. He's obviously trying to say that you know, it's like, sure, you're an expert. You know, it's like I'm I'm trying to be helpful here. And what does Albert say immediately? Practice walking without dragging your knuckles. You know, it's like that is rude. And you know, Harry calls him out on it. You know, grabs him by the by the scruff of his tie, and <laughs> you know, like um. You know, that's when we get Albert's amazing <laughs> monologue that doesn't fit with anything else that Frost and, Pey and Peyton have ever written about Albert up to this point. Um, <clears throat> he says, while I will admit to a certain cynicism, the fact of the matter is I'm merely a naysayer and hatchet man in the fight against violence. I pride myself in taking a punch and would gladly take another because I choose to live my life in the company of Gandhi and King. My concerns are global. I reject absolutely revenge, aggression, and retaliation. The foundation of such a method is love. I love you, Sheriff Truman. And, you know, obviously I'm not trying to do an impression and outdo Ferrer there, but, um, you know, the, the words are still the words. Um, you know, it's, I, I can, I can willingly, I, I can, I, I can see he willingly fights back the darkness in the darkness. You know, there, there's a lot that works, you know, okay, sure. He's just, you know, he's got the cynicism. He's a naysayer. He's a hatchet man. Um, you know, that that can track with his behavior while still being in the service against violence based on how he just put it there. Um, I can I can even see him being against revenge and retaliation. You know, it's like he's just, uh, you know, that, that report he does to Harry 
um, you know, he he doesn't punch Harry back. He just files a report uh, holding holding Harry accountable for his actions of punching. Um, but Albert is absolutely lying when he says he's against aggression because <laughs> there's no way to amp up energy better than he does. You know, there, there's the comments being mean towards Harry and, you know, like he, he's just aggressive to everybody in town. You know, it's like he meets aggression with aggression. He meets people that he thinks as dumber than him with aggression, too, pretty well. You know, if, if he's just calling it like he sees it, then that means he doesn't actually respect Truman right now. And I think, I mean, respecting someone is a qualifier to being able to love them, I would assume. You know, it's like, okay, you know, I love them like a, like a pet. You know, it's like, but, you know, they're, they're, they're not a pet, they're humans. <laughs> so, you know, there's, um, there, there's the immediate line after this, the comedy that, that kind of brings the mood back down. Like, so you don't have to think about it too hard. Albert's path is a strange and difficult one. You know, I mean, it, it kind of gives certain parts of it a pass. And, you know, it, it does do what the story mandates. You know, it's like, it does soften Albert here, but it, it's, so you know but but it's all in one scene and it's a little too pat you know i mean it's essentially a real-time retcon just like how donna wears the sunglasses and becomes a femme fatale and um you know even the major has that one vision that retcons his um you know hitting behavior with bobby you know it's like there's there's this is just another one of those kind of scenes where it's a little bit hard to swallow if you look at it a little bit too closely. But, you know, that said, you know, you, you can strive for something and still not hit the mark all the time. It's like how um, in season three, you know, Cole has, you know, he, he's called out by Denise about the, um, you know, his propensity for, you know, having young female agents, et cetera, et cetera, you know, the young female part. And, um, you know, it's like everybody has a problem that they evolve through. And uh, when it comes down to insults and everything else, like Albert really does seem to not have that anymore, even though he still has a bite. Uh, but, you know, he, he seems to respect people a lot better in season three where, you know, he like bites his tongue rather than bites the person. You know, sure. Right now, he only respects the people on the Blue Rose task force with him. But. You know, he, he's he's got room to grow and he actually kind of does it before the end of this season even. And, um, you know, it, it gives everybody room to know that he has room to grow into himself even better. And um, I don't know, maybe it's maybe it's instinctively something that we root for with Albert. <laughs> but it's nice that he has a path to get there now. Okay, so now that we've looked at Albert pretty much as much as we can this episode, it's time to look back over at his buddy Cooper and how Cooper navigates the layers of Twin Peaks. So looking at the the worldly issues first, you know, the, the stuff as far from Lodge Space as it gets, he gives James and Shelley advice at the sheriff's station. You know, it's like James is left free by Hawk and Cooper says... Stop trying to figure it out yourself. Later on with Shelly trying to talk about, you know, like, um, I'm not going to say anything against Leo. I love him. And just, you know, Harry's trying, you know, Harry's trying to get information out of Shelly and she's stonewalling. And, um, you know, Cooper, he just like breaks it down, <laughs> you know, just like, okay, well, you know, we, we've got a cheery disposition. Uh, you're really believing this. And, you know, he's going to, He's going to, you know, Leo's going to be just fine, you know, and, and then he like pushes Shelly out the door and she's she's acting like, you know, it's like, wait, why aren't you pushing back against this? And, uh, <laughs> you know, Cooper basically, um, you know, after she leaves, he says, smells like insurance money. And, um, you know, I, I think he's basically letting Shelly live with what she did for a little while and then maybe will decide to. um you know, come back from the edge on that one. Uh, you know, tough love, basically. As far as the Josie storyline goes, um, Harry gets a call from Pete, uh, you know, sometime in the middle of this episode, and, um, you know, he hears that Josie's going to be back tomorrow. And, um, you know, Cooper basically wants to arrest her for questioning. 
on any number of things at this point and um defers to harry when he asks cooper if harry can speak to her first instead of just you know bringing her right in and uh, he says okay and then we've got his involvement with audrey and ben horn in this episode as far as audrey goes um we see her in one-eyed jacks and you know her arms and her legs are being tied up and we don't even see her face you know we just see the arms and legs being tied up and um we see emery filming with a camcorder that's piped into a tv and um we see blackie getting the needle ready and then she says she's ready for her close-up now as emery finally um gets audrey's face on the television so we don't actually see audrey's face in that whole scene um we just see her reflected through um you know it's not a mirror but it's basically the same function as it so audrey's in a really negative place here through code and through uh reality you know she's ready for a close-up now is the first nod to audrey connecting with norma desmond which we will be talking a lot about in season three based on her story arc but then we've got um you know thanks to fcc regulations we've got blackie injecting her arm just off camera and then we see the back of audrey's head the whole time with her face being on the television looking at us looking at audrey so yeah, that's that's tough. Um, then we've got Emery talking about how, you know, we should get rid of her. She knows I sent Laura here. She knows Ben Horn owns the place. And then Blackie says, Ben Horn will pay for his daughter and I'll buy the bastard out. So, you know, I mean, they're they're putting together their um, their Machiavellian plans here. Um, and, you know, we've got Emery worrying about keeping his job and that. uh Blackie promises that she's bringing in all the help they need, you know, all. And then like right after that, she's admiring how high Audrey is because it's, it's just, it's just like what your daddy did to me. So, you know, she's, she's taking revenge from trauma inflicted on her by repeating the cycle of trauma to someone else and you know that that's about as on theme as you're gonna get after that we'll see cooper at the great northern with jonathan watching cooper speaking to ben um about any word about audrey you know ben's basically dismissive at this point saying oh this thing happens a lot you know it's like she'll be gone for days and then she'll just magically reappear or whatever whatever he says um and um Based on that dismissiveness, uh, Cooper asks if there's any trouble at home. And, um, you know, instead of taking any responsibility for it, Ben pivots that problem of his onto the problem of Cooper's. And, you know, he he basically comes right out and, and says, do I detect something outside of strictly professional concern? And, um, you know, then then he'll tell Cooper about, you know, men, men, fall under her charm and um you know essentially you know he he suggests heavily for cooper to park his jalopy under someone else's window <laughs> so you know the lech is calling out the uh the lawman for being a lech even though uh you know we we kind of let that ship sail in season one but um yeah the only other noteworthy thing about that is after ben leaves cooper leaves and then jonathan follows cooper so you know it's kind of forwarding along that um you know why why is this man following cooper and um yeah that'll that'll get dealt with when we actually deal with josie's storyline again and then after that we're back to one-eyed jacks where audrey is strung out on the bed and you know she's laid out it's probably the same the same prudence bed as before and um we see jean and nancy there and uh, you know nancy blackie's sister jean renault the incredibly scary you know uh renault brother and you know the we we get uh jean running lace over audrey's face to stir her um offers her an english caramel you know and then he shoots up her arm after that um and you know, he just says, sweet sleep, feel the warmth. And uh, I mean, you know, OK, obviously this is a um, a way to keep down Fenn's working hours because, you know, she was dealing with pneumonia at the time and, um, you know, she couldn't work very many hours anyway. So, you know, keep her sedated on a bed makes a ton of sense. Um, 
But yeah, I mean, Jean cannot be any creepier about that. You know, it's like he's like giving her treats and then he's like doing the damage to her too. Then in Blackie's office, we got Emery verifying more stuff. You know, he um he sees that security tape of Cooper at the at the the blackjack table and um you know he verifies that that guy is an fbi agent and um jean comes in there too and uh he decides that he's going to be the in-between he's going to take 30 percent ben horn doesn't learn who has kidnapped his daughter and jean gets the man who killed his brother because he's making sure that cooper is the one who delivers the money and, you know, he's he's all basically blasé in tone about this because he really is that creepy. And um, after Emery leaves, he adds this extra little bit to Blackie where, like, the scene ends with him saying, but we can't let the girl live now, can we? Audrey is definitely in danger and Cooper is definitely embroiled. Okay, now it's time to start looking at the lodgier side of Cooper's job. So yeah, the beginning of the episode starts out with Ronette being lowered onto the bed by two nurses. Um, then that that pan across the office while um, everybody else starts, um, you know, doing their thing. And then by the time we get to the main door, that's where Cooper and Albert enter. So Harry's already in there. He talked about how Ronette removed her IV, and um, that to me basically says she took that poison out of her, but um, we'll talk about that in a second. Um, the the letter went under her nail when we had twenty four hour guard, and again that didn't matter because Leland and Bob are a little too crafty for that somehow. But I also think it's related to the blue liquid. Oh yeah, they, they obviously know that it's the killer because the letters hadn't been made public yet, but um. But this blue liquid, it's not identified as haloperidol, whereas um, Gerard's stuff is labeled that. So it's not the same stuff as the one-armed man. Um, or <laughs> Philip Gerard. I, I got to stop with the nomenclature in the show. So is the stuff just poison that um, is going to kill Ronette and therefore Bob can put the letter under the nail? Or... Is it something where it like suppresses sight? You know, does it allow for Bob to infiltrate, you know, the while while in the hospital? You know, it's like there's no ceiling fan. Sure, there's a lot of hospital equipment, but there's no ceiling fan access. So I wonder if that drug concoction is kind of like that jar that Margaret gives Cooper at the end of episode or at, at the end of the season. And um just in general, this this blue liquid you know did did pulling out the iv actually stop bob's presence entirely yeah there's there's not really i mean it, it was an interrupted kill essentially so you know was was that the method of the kill or was that the method of hiding bob from 24-hour guard anyway how they found the letter is cooper's using tweezers slowly while Ronette isn't actually too sedated yet and we get a slowed scream so like the visuals are slow and her audio is in normal range so it's not exactly i i, I don't know because because this kind of thing isn't really um done very often in the show without slowed vocals but slowed visuals yeah you know, i i think that's just gladder not really um noticing how slowed down stuff would become and you know i mean how could she <laughs> but anyway it's pretty telegraphed that the bee uh from under her nail is that thing that cooper is tweezing because that's what's coming or that that's what's framed in Ronette's screaming mouth at the time of the transition now it's a it's like right after this, right after the analysis of the bee, when Cooper brings everybody together and says, fellas, let's stand together for a moment. So, you know, there's close proximity. And, um, you know, he admits to his two guys, uh, the, the two best guys in Twin Peaks and FBI, respectively, um, that he had been visited by a giant twice in his room and that the giant shared three clues. 
Now, now, Albert, you know, being the grounding force, he says, I have a relation to the dwarf. But, you know, that that's the thing that they focus on throughout the rest of the episode. You know, at the sheriff's station, Cooper's got this thing in, on a chalkboard where he's got RBT up at the top. And then he's got a, a circle with uh, Bob and uh, the, the have you seen this man picture of Bob in the center. And you've got Mrs. Palmer on top with a line going to Cooper on the right with a line going to Cooper uh, with, with a line going to Ronette on the bottom with a line going to Maddie on the left. And that line goes back to Mrs. Palmer. So um, Cooper basically calls it a psychic link that will lead us straight to Bob. So um, from a story perspective, you know, interview Maddie, dude. <laughs> but um, we don't really get too much further on that one. Um, we do have Gerard coming to the um, to the station at that point. Um, you know, and, and, and there's a scene with him and Harry where Gerard is actually talking like a normal person, selling shoes like a normal person until he finally sees the Bob Flyer. So that sets off something in him, whether it's Mike stirring or whether it's just, you know, uh, <laughs> just, just, you know, fear related to seeing Bob. Um, however it is, it looks like he's hypnotized or triggered. He, the words he used, or the word he used is disoriented. And, you know, then he asks for the bathroom. He has some medication to take. So I think he does understand that Mike is being awoken here and that he needs to suppress him with, with his, uh, with his syringe. And then we get this cool transition where, you know, you're looking above, at the stall looking down on Gerard trying to give himself a shot in the leg. And, um, you know, the voice filter is already kicking in at this point, you know, the, the, the mic voice filter. And then, you know, it looks like he drops the syringe and then the camera moves, um, from the top over to in front of the stall where the door is closed. So, you know, it's like in, in one single shot, you can kind of show that, Mike is definitely surface now. And, you know, he does open up the door and it's, you know, very Jekyll and Hyde. You know, he says, Bob, I know you're near. I'm after you now. And then it goes to commercial break. And after that commercial break, you know, next time we look at the uh, at the sheriff station scenes, you know, they find out that Gerard's been missing. And, um, you know, once Cooper finds out a few more things, then he storms the bathroom uh, because, you know, he mentions that he there was a one-armed man in his dream. So he's got this definite connection between <laughs> between Philip Gerard and Mike, um, you know, but nothing has been proven until he finds the needle. And then, um, you know, third episode in a row, the, you know, the um, the man in the smiling bag got solved in the first episode of the season. The second episode is where he got a reasonable path from um, the elves are not what they seem. And then here we have. Uh, without chemicals, he points. And, you know, the syringe doesn't have any chemicals in it anymore, and the needle is kind of pointing towards something. So that's how that's how Cooper put that one together. And, uh, you know, he says, the giant's third clue, Harry, we've got to find that one-armed man. And then a little bit after that, we've got Leland um, coming into the sheriff's station. And, like, when, when the lawmen are out in the hallway, they just talked about giant details with Hawk and Harry. And they go into the hallway. And um, this is where Leland absolutely swoops in, like how the log lady did when they first got to her cabin or, like, the uh, garbage dumpster uh, character thing shows up in, in Mulholland Drive later. Leland talks again about, you know... The, uh, you know, at Pearl Lakes, his uh, grandfather's house. Um, and you know, he's like, not the Chalberts on the one side. It, there's a vacant lot on the other, followed by his White House, meaning Robertson. And, you know, this is where this is where Coop decides to talk about the RBT right in front of Leland to the other guys. You know, it's like, sure, you know, whatever, you know, just just reveal Reveal some details right there in the middle of where anybody can hear, especially your killer. And, you know, Leland's acting like I've done good, you know, because <laughs> he's uh, he's looking like he's trying to be a people pleaser. And then he um, then he brings up, you know, it's like, oh, yeah. And then he used to flick matches at me and he does a thing with an actual matchstick and, you know, says, 
you want to play with fire, little boy? And then, you know, he flicks the the match straight into the ashtray, except it stays lit, which is nice and creepy. Good move, Leland. You've been practicing that. Um, it's almost like you know how to do that move naturally. Anyway, Cooper picks up that that lit match, blows it out and says, that's our man. And it goes to commercial break. Now, that thread will be picked up in a later episode because Hawk comes back a little bit later and says that the Pearl House, the Pearl Lakes house checks out, but there's no names on it. It's boarded up and uh, the records check should come back tomorrow. So the house is already verified that it exists this episode. So that have you seen that man uh, flyer has already triggered uh, Leland into doing some things and um they're kind of associating it with uh, with Dick Tremaine at all. I mean, as well, you know, just because, you know, he's fixing his hair in the glass. And, you know, it's like the, the Bob thing is like right in front of him while he's, you know, making sure he's absolutely perfectly quaffed or whatever. Yeah. So it's not exactly how Lodge Space is intruding on Twin Peaks here, but it's um, it's a good way to start off that section um, just because they're trying to rhyme bob with um <laughs> with tremaine's behavior at this point um you know what tremaine's doing is actually trying to get lucy to go to the double r with him and we get to find out what kind of pompous guy he is because you know he's talking about his sorting techniques his inventory methods uh regardless of lucy's boredom if she drops silverware he doesn't help her or if lucy wants to answer a question not about his european way of piling and she finally does ask, you know, it's like, where has he been since that one night? And, you know, he makes excuses for not calling after six weeks of regular contact before that. And eventually he tries to offer her a dress on discount, which is super classy, Dick Germain. Um, and eventually she says, how about a maternity dress? And, uh, you know, then he says, hmm, preggers. Hmm. And then, of course, nothing to say, even though he could talk about you know, <laughs> any kind of mundane thing that he's otherwise associated with ad nauseum. Now, Harold Smith's issues definitely seem to be related to um, delusion, if not Lodge Space itself. I mean, it's hard to tell if it's all related in that way. But, you know, he had his issues before he met Do uh, before he met Laura. And um, but however it started, um before Donna can knock, Harold's already opening the door. So, I mean, sure, he was watching her come up, but, you know, there's also, like, this weird kind of, like, I already know you're there. No knock, no doorbell. Um, no sound made for her to open up, the, uh, for, for her to have the door open for her. You know, Harold compliments Donna on the different clothes from yesterday. So, yeah, he's, like, uber paying attention to the little details. Then he introduces himself by name, and Donna doesn't. Again, like she, she's, um, she's really smart and not giving that part of herself to new people. It seems like, um, she says, well, I guess, you know who I am as she walks in, you know, he's looking suspiciously out as he closes the door and, you know, again, he's scared of the outside, but you know, it's like, what's he going to do to her in there? So yeah, on the green couch, Donna's sitting all the way to the right of the screen and Harold's sitting in the middle of his cushion next to her. You know, she's like, you don't look, uh, you, you don't look much like a shut in. And, you know, he, he takes that and just says it out loud. You mean what's wrong with me? Um, you know, then he asks if she has any judgment she'd like to express. And she says, no. Um, and then he compliments her. Laura said you were fair minded. You know, she gets out of him that, um, Laura thought of Harold as a mystery in her life. So, you know, Secrets and Mysteries comes up a lot more um, later on, but it's, um, yeah. I mean, from the diary, we know that, you know, she's trying to protect Harold from the the Bob side of her life. But uh, <clears throat> here it just comes off as very, very suspicious. And the other thing Donna's curious about, you know, she, um, oh, yeah, she said, I'm not scared. Just I'm curious. The thing she's most curious about is, why did you send me that letter? He said, Laura wanted Harold to get in touch with her if something ever happened to her, which, you know, may or may not be true. What I think really was there was, yeah, he asked, would you be kind enough to place an orchid on her grave? So 
I think that's really why he wanted to contact Donna is to get this to Laura's grave. Well, Donna could have just ended there. She's, I, I think her curiosity held on to her and she did like some of the compliments and the attention because, um, later on after she's kind of spurned by James and Maddie, um, <clears throat> she goes back to, the, uh, to Harold's house and, you know, she's crying and you know, it's like, I didn't know where else to go, uh, feel so stupid. And, um, Harold proves once again that he knows a lot about her. And he says, Donna, Madonna, there's always manana. And she's like, how do you know that? And, um, you know, he bundles her up in a blanket and gets her something to drink. And you know, she finds a red orchid while she's waiting and sees a book, um, which, you know, she opens up and says, this is the diary of Laura Palmer. So she knows that Harold has more things than he's letting on. And now it's like the same thing with physical stuff rather than just his information. So he already is complimenting her a lot. And, um, you know, he also has all these secrets. You know, he's got that one envelope sticking out of the bottom of his bookshelf that she couldn't get out. So, um, yeah, she's got enough reasons on both sides of her brain to want to come back to Harold's house. Now, the other people who know <laughs> quite a bit about Donna at this point are James and Maddie. And we see them, um, their first scene in the episode, um, James is talking to Maddie in a booth at the double R, you know, talking, you know, James basically confiding in Maddie that, you know, it's like, does Donna seem different to you? You know, it's like, she's smoking. She's, um, as James puts it, acting tough and stuff. And, um, you know, it's like, is this, <laughs> is this James's turkey jerky moment? You know, it's like, this was in here last time or, <laughs> you know, it's like, what's changed, you know, <laughs> like James is noticing the, um, the, uh, lodge influenced part of Donna and now he's saying it out loud. And, um, you know, Maddie's all smiles while he's talking about Donna like that until he brings up how she wanted to do it with him between the bars. And then, you know, that's when Maddie stopped smiling. Um, <clears throat> then you know then he then he gives the uh the classic line delivery that a lot of people wished he would have done at the time uh sometimes i think i should just get on my bike and go and um this is when maddie grabs james's hand and says james running away won't solve anything and you know there's a ding of the uh, of the diner door at that time and um you know she's basically trying to convince james to you know, not look away from his problems, which is, you know, a good, a good theme to, to be, um, aligned with, you know, I mean, sure. Her story doesn't end well, but I think Maddie's actually kind of in a, a smart place at the moment. And, um, you know, of course, you know, she thinks that, uh, James and Donna should probably talk, you know, Donna doesn't see that. All she sees is as she's walking toward the table, Maddie is holding on to James's hand. So, you know, she, she tells them, you know, it's like, there's this new friend who's unlike anyone I know. And James is like, what's that supposed to mean? Cause you know, he definitely understood that there were daggers in those words. Um, and you know, Donna just, tells them why don't you sit here and hold hands and try to figure it out <laughs> and uh yeah then um you know do do they take that advice um it's tough to know because when um maddie's in the palmer house and james enters you know james is in the door frame maddie says james away from the camera and um you know like they're um you know, James is looking for Donna again. He's focused on Donna. And, um, you know, he didn't know who else to talk to. But then he chooses Maddie to tell this all to anyway. And, of course, you know, it's the the somewhat maudlin thing about, you know, his mom came home all screwed up and he wants to talk to somebody. And, um, you know, she kind of holds him and touches his neck. And she's like, you're on fire. And, you know, they they eventually try to kiss. And then they're hugging. Um, and I, I think they're trying to restrain themselves, but you know, of course, this is when Donna's also in the doorway when they're when when the camera moves around their their close up faces to the doorway. Of course, Donna is standing there, and just happenstantially, perhaps there's the red lamp on Maddie's side of their screen, and um, 
you know, Donna leaves. James sweeps off a lamp on his side, plus a whole bunch of pictures on his way out, shouting, why? And <laughs> yeah, and, and Leland is actually there and he says nothing. He does nothing. So, you know, it's like, who knows? Maybe that actually was more of a Leland moment at the time. But um, yeah, he's he he didn't complain at all that some of you know parts of his house, part of his part of his property just got slapped down by this um, this boy. But yeah, James follows her out, and and as Donna's you know peeling away in her vehicle, uh, you know he's just shouting "Why?" to the whole neighborhood. It's like James, we all know why. Why don't you know why? At that point, we just see a traffic light transition where it goes from yellow to red. Now, right after that scene, we we next see her going to Harold, where, you know, she's like, I didn't know where else to go. I feel so stupid. But before that, she's um, she's having a heart to heart with Laura. <clears throat> so we actually get a firsthand view of her feelings towards Laura here at the gravestone, which I think is one of uh, Laura Flynn Boyle's um uh, best scenes in the whole series as far as i'm concerned like she's so good at that like anytime she's crying like she really knows how to bring this intensity and emotion to it that like you can't help but feel it so anyway she starts that scene actually putting harold's orchid on laura's um gravestone and um she says this is from harold smith um you know she apologizes for um not having visited since since the funeral but then she asks you know it's like you know harold you know he's seems pretty nice kind of an oddball and um you know it's like are you sleeping with that guy or what and uh yeah so like she she kind of moves away from that and um you know she's standing at this point kind of looking away from the gravestone when she's talking about how you um Maybe you already know about me and James, but anyway, after you died, we kind of got together. This is not something I feel like I have to explain to you because you probably knew how we felt before we did. And, you know, this gets into an interesting part about Laura's precognition um, mentioned in like a really nicely organic way. Um, <clears throat> you know, then, then she says to, to Laura, how could you be so smart about stuff like that and so stupid about so much else? And then she actually kneels down and gets closer, gets gets in the face of the grave in a way. You know, she actually puts it out there. I'm mad at you. Um, when it was you and me and James, it kind of worked. Now you're gone. I love James, and it's a mess. You know, and then she talks about how uh, Laura's cousin Maddie is there, and um, she thinks there's something going on between Maddie and James, which, you know, she gets confirmed right after that uh, in the Palmer house. You know, Donna's basically convinced that she's going to end up losing James and Laura through this whole thing. Then we get a neat part from Donna's point of view entirely. She says, I wanted to be so much like you, Laura, to have your strength and your courage. But look what it did to you. So, like, this might be a, a final realization of what those sunglasses were doing to Donna in the two episodes before this, plus this one, you know, this might be a way of Donna, you know, pulling herself back from that whole thing and, um, you know, being more herself from now on. But anyway, Donna leans forward at the end and really puts out a feeling that, um, you know, she's kind of reacting in a similar way to Maddie as, um, as she will, as Maddie will with Leland in a little bit. She says, as much as I love you, Laura, most of the time we were trying to solve your problems. And you know what? We still are. Not mine or James or Maddie's. Yours. You're dead, Laura, but your problems keep hanging around. It's like they didn't bury you deep enough. And, um, you know, that hangs a hat on the um, that absent presence for sure. And... um the only thing that can look back at her to respond is the gravestone. Now, before I actually go into Maddie's uh, parts for this episode, um, there's a little bit more Lodge influence that we're getting from um, from other perspectives. And we've got the one from uh, Nadine in the hospital. You know, it's like they've got her strapped by the wrists 
they uh, push that away by saying, um, by having Doc Hayward saying, you know, she's pumping out more adrenaline than a wildcat. And then, you know, she already broke a bunch of those restraints. Um, so Doc suggests to Ed to sing to calm her down. So, you know, she's going to be stuck in a delusion for a while. What brings her out and wakes her up? Music, you know, there, there, where we're from, there's always music in the air. And uh, Nadine's going to be living in a dream for a while because Ed grabs her hand, starts singing on top of Old Smokey. <laughs> and um, as he keeps going, you know, the Nadine's grip on him gets really intense. Even though this is happening to him, he actually keeps singing to almost see how far this can go. Right before Nadine wakes up, her arms go up. And um, do they go up by the wrist or what? But like they, they start raising up just slightly like the way Ronette's arms did before she had her Bob nightmare. Except this time, you know, Nadine just breaks her restraints and she sits up and she begins clapping and, you know, doing the steeplejacks cheer. <laughs> and, uh, you know, like, you know, she'll say like, hi, Eddie, did you come by to pick me up? And she blames her hospital stay on tonsillitis. And, um you know, she's a senior now and she wants to try out for cheerleading because you're only 18 once. And, you know, obviously there's irony for all of us here, but, uh, you know, she's just bouncing on the bed next to Ed as the camera completely backs out, uh, backs away from them, backs out of the room and backs all the way out down the hallway, almost doing like a reverse crawl from the way Ronette's dream went. So like there's a lot of associations with a uh, lot space influenced Ronette and Nadine as far as like, you know, physical actions of how they wake up and how else is uh, Nadine's dream specifically lodge like, uh, well, um, she's, basically going through her wants list for for high school you know it's like she never did you know she was a she was a little brown mouse back when she did it the first time and this time she's living all by her wants and what she wants she's gonna try out and try to get it because that's what you do in a dream now jacoby's also in the hospital in a later scene we get him with his um with his um, blink and you'll miss her wife, Iolani, and there's candles all around. And um, um, when when Cooper and Harry arrive, um, uh, Jacoby says they're practicing a creative Kahuna healing, and he's ready for his hypnosis session. Um, so like he knew that he was going that um, Cooper, you know, Cooper and Harry made an appointment with him to do hypnosis, and. Um, <laughs> And of course, Jacoby has an auto suggestion program that he uses, like naturally, of course, you know, he likes hypnosis. So his wife starts the tape with the music. Harry holds a shiny sphere of a rock that um, at the end of the bed. So it's like a light directing thing. And Harry's really funny with it. Um, you know, he's just like, I don't know, man. <laughs> and um and the thing that Cooper actually reads to get him hypnotized, it's a it's a golf scenario. You know, it's like you're on the greens and you're going to get a hole in one. And <laughs> it's just like uh, sends sends Jacoby in with a dream of happiness. And of course, golf has to be the thing that makes him happy because, you know, why not? Now, the the lodgy kind of clues we get from this hypnosis is that um I smell engine oil out at the park. So is he smelling the scorched engine oil like around um like around the the Jacques murder or is this just something completely different? Like does Leland just like to rev his car like he did in Fire Walk with me and that's why he smells like it or was Bob present there in the park? Um <clears throat> either way it's already a clue that viewers can connect to the guy who killed um who can who, who killed Jacques and we already know that's Leland but um you know then we we hear how um he talks about um you know the sound of the tape wakes him up uh when when he was there with Jacques, Jacques murder and um he he uh he describes Jacques um sounds as 
dog barking noises, you know, the, like the struggling noises sounded like a dog barking to him. And, um, you know, we've already got animalistic sounds being a big theme in Twin Peaks. You know, we've got the article on 25YL, My Dog Barks Some, Animalistic Noises in uh, the Works of David Lynch by Andreas Holzkoff. Um, again, worth a, worth a look. And um, yeah, so like there's, there's all these like negative connotation things here and signs that Lodge Space Presence is um, around. And then, um, and then Jacoby says, I know him. In a way that, um, you know, he, he recognizes the killer in that same vocal uh, pattern that Leland said about Bob. I know him. And, of course, you know, it cuts away for dramatic intent. And, um, you know, they, they don't arrest Leland until, um, until after he tries to comfort Maddie. And they come to arrest, <clears throat> excuse me, and they come to arrest Leland after he's comforting Maddie, but like more specifically, he's trying to comfort Maddie in a way that like, if life could only be like those summers up at Pearl Lakes. So, you know, based on the fact of, you know, it's like when, when, (laughs) I mean, that's where Robertson was. So like, that's a red flag all by itself. And, um, you know, when, when he looks up in the, um, in the same doorway where Donna caught James and Maddie, that's where Harry and Cooper catch him. And, um, you know, Maddie's resting on Leland's shoulder. Uh, yeah. And in, in, in Leland's, uh, shoulder, it just, you know, she's got her head on him like a, like a daughter to a father. And, um, you know, they say, Leland, you're under arrest for the murder of Jacques Renault. But right before that, we have Maddie basically trying to get out from under Laura, you know, the, the same way that, that Donna dumps all her feelings toward Laura and about Laura onto the gravestone. Um, you know, Maddie has her own here, um, you know, and, um, (laughs) and we've got, we've got Cheryl Lee basically, um, doing this great work here and um you know maddie's crying you know all i did was go to a funeral and you know she's touching a fireplace where you know the in the same room where she's gonna die and um you know she's uh, she says all i did was go to a funeral and it felt like i fell into a dream so again you know a lot of spaciness with her and laura and you know it's like maybe it's wearing her clothes whatever but um you know, she, she's under that influence. And like, this is her trying to take herself back. Um, you know, she says, it's, it's like people think I'm Laura and, and I'm not. (laughs) And she shifts over to crying. She says, I'm nothing like Laura. And that's when she sits next to Leland, who's in his understanding mode. And, um, you know, Maddie continues. She's, she says, all I know is that Laura is my cousin. And I loved her and she died. I don't know anything else. You know, she's like pleading. She's pleading to everybody, but like specifically to Leland that, you know, it's like, I am not Laura. And, you know, Leland pulls her in with a hug. You know, he, he, he just specifically, you know, comes out and says, it. you know, it's like, you want life to be how it was before. It's all right. We all do. And try as we might, it just won't cooperate, will it? And, you know, that's when he goes into Pearl Lake's uh, comment and everything. But, you know, it's like it's it's sort of sound advice in a way, but like it's also very patriarchal. It's like, you know, like he he's not exactly sympathizing with her as much as like telling her that, you know, this is what you're feeling. <laughs> but, yeah, like it's I I just find it really interesting that um, both Maddie and Donna are trying to get out from under Laura but um donna has a gravestone to talk to which can't talk back and then maddie is doing it with her killer all right well that wraps up this episode you have been listening to the blue rose task force podcast a production of ruminations radio network and tv obsessive radio 
If you resonate with what you're hearing, please subscribe, rate, and review our show. And we would love to connect with you on Twitter at Blue Rose TF Pod, on Counter Social at Blue Rose Task Force Podcast, and Instagram and Facebook at Blue Rose Task Force. You can find me at JPB underscore Little Green on Twitter and John underscore the underscore Peaky on Instagram. Visit RuminationsRadioNetwork.com for additional great shows such as 25 Yards Later and Brevity Box. Find any number of classic 25YL Twin Peaks articles and content on many other TV shows at TVObsessive.com. If you want to be part of a next mailbag episode, send any comments, questions, or feedback to Blue Rose Task Force Podcast at gmail.com. And we'll see you next week as we cover episode 11, the 12th overall episode of Twin Peaks. Until then, listeners, I'll see you in my dreams.